Good morning. Okay, so I have a question for you. Why is it so hard to behave according to how we believe? Why is it so hard to live according to what we know to be true? Why is that such a struggle? Well, five year, about five years ago, a doctor told me that um, my blood pressure was getting too high. And my mom and dad each went on blood pressure medication when they were in their 50s. And so apparently high blood pressure is somewhat of, you know, something in the family history that I probably should be watching out for. But I went to the doctor and, and he said, you know, your blood pressure is high, but um, he said you can thwart going on blood pressure medication if you will just pay really close attention to your diet and if you will exercise regularly, there's a really good chance that you could bring it back down just with good, healthy lifestyle choices. And so I, I did it, actually. I, yeah, I did it. I went on a diet. I lost 30 pounds. And I went back to his office five months later, and he took a double take when he looked at the number on the scale, because he said, oh my goodness, I tell people to do this every day, but nobody really does it. <laughs> and I'm like, I know, I did it. I, I put my mind to work. I practiced what I knew to be true. I put it into action. I behaved like I believed, and I lost 30 pounds. But guess what? That was 2012. <laughs> Six years later, guess what? 30 pounds are back on. The exercise routine is in the rearview mirror. <laughs> and I spent this weekend sick from high blood pressure. Actually, had kind of a weird experience this weekend. My blood pressure spiked so high it made me sick. Has anyone ever had that happen? Um, I had, for the last couple of weeks, I've been having these erratic heart fluctuations, really low and then really high. And so that's been kind of concerning. And then uh, Friday night, I got tightness of my chest, had a hard time breathing, um, just my heart beating erratically, took my blood pressure, and it was in the super high. You know, if it's, if it's like 180 over 120, you call 911, you know, it was just a little below that. And so on Saturday, ended up going to urgent care, and um, they had did an EKG to make sure that I wasn't actually having a heart attack. And then the doctor the, on the, the, uh, they took my blood pressure. It was still really high, but not as high as Friday night. But the doctor, the urgent care doctor, um, you know, it's funny when urgent care doctors tell you things that they're also not living. So this beautiful, sweet urgent care doctor who was quite rotund um, <laughs> said to me, he said, you know, uh, you, you need to take care of yourself. He's like, <laughs> he said, you know, you, he said, you need to, to eat better and you need to exercise regularly. And he said, you need to manage your stress. You need to take better care of yourself. And he admitted, he said, you know, I don't do that very well myself, as you can see. He says, I work 12 hour days. I don't exercise either. And I live on energy drinks, but I can tell you what you need to do to take better care of yourself so you don't go into stage two hypertension. And you know what I said? I'm like, I know, <laughs> I know, I know, I know, I know this to be true. Why do I not do the things I know? Why do I not behave as I believe? Why do any of us not behave as we believe? It could be that our lives are at risk because of it. 
So I told him, I know my, my behavior is not congruent with my beliefs and my body's paying the price. Why do we battle with these struggles of the heart, the mind, the flesh? Why do we battle with these things? Why do we not live out our lives perfectly according to what we know to be true? Paul, thankfully, he struggled with this too because in Romans 7.15, he said, for I do not understand my own actions. He said, I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Paul knows. He, he's, he's living this reality with us, but he also knows so much great wisdom that he received from Christ about how we are to live according to how we believe. And today he's going to remind us that we are new creations in Christ. We have a new identity, and therefore we do have a new way to live. Our behaviors actually can align with our beliefs. There is not only the truth of God's word, there's the spirit of God to help us, and there's power from Christ, that resurrected power that can really enable us to do, to live our lives congruent with what we believe. So today, this is how we're going to look at this lesson. In the first part, in, in Ephesians 4, 17 through 24, we're going to talk about our new identity. We are a new creation in Christ. And then in the second part, in 25 through 32, we're going to talk about our new lifestyle. So we are changed. We, ha- we are new people in Christ. We're new women in Christ. And what we're going to learn today is that our new identity in Christ changes our behavior in life. It changes it. So let's start by talking about our new identity. Seems like we're talking about identity a lot as we're going through Ephesians 4, because this is what Paul is trying to help us understand, who we are in Christ. He's been talking about our identity all the way through Ephesians so far. So we now know that we've been blessed with the spiritual riches in Christ. We learned last week from Jamie how we're to use our spiritual gifts and how we are to grow in maturity and faith um, because of our identity in Christ. And now Paul is challenging us to live out our identity in the choices, in the behaviors, in the actions, in the attitudes of our daily life. He's saying, okay, this is, he's told us, this is who you are. Now you got to live this out. Remember, walk worthy of the calling to which you've been called. This is how it looks in every day of your life as you live it out. And he's really emphatic when he starts off because he says, now this I say and testify in the Lord. So he's just, he's not saying this is what I say. He's saying this is a divine revelation from the Lord. This is wisdom that has come to Paul from God himself, and so we have to pay close attention to what he says next. He says, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Now just a few verses ago when he told us, he told us we are to walk worthy of the calling to which we've been called, he's telling us already we've got to live out this new life of faith, and now he's telling us how do we actually do this? And to start, we are not to walk in our lives like an unbeliever, someone who doesn't know God. Gentiles in this context doesn't refer to an ethnic group. So we've been talking about Jews and Gentiles. We've been talking about these two ethnic groups that have unity now as one body in Christ. This is not referring to this in this way. He's speaking about Gentiles as pagan unbelievers, people who do not know the God of the Jews, the God of Israel, the God Jesus. And so that he's, this, he's speaking of um, a spiritual or a moral group of people who don't know God. And um, these are people who are living in the world, who are following the ways of the world, who are listening to the words of the culture, who are patterning their lives out of, after the culture. Their minds are filled with vain and empty thoughts. 
And then so Paul's saying to us, he's, he's speaking to the core of our being and he's warning us, he's saying, stop thinking like an unbeliever. Stop following the ways of the world like you used to before you met Christ. We are not that person anymore. You are not that person anymore. I am not that person anymore. When, we know that when we come to faith in Christ, we have this new identity, as we've learned. We are, we, are, we are holy and blameless in Christ. We're adopted into God's royal family. We belong to him. We are daughters of the king. And because we have a relationship with God and we have his word, we actually have a whole different understanding of life, don't we? We see life now through a biblical lens. So we understand when we look at our beautiful world, we understand there was a creator. God created we understand the problem of sin. We're not surprised when the news is terrible and bad things are happening. We, we know that's sin. We understand that we're sinners. We know that Jesus came and he died for us on a cross. He, he broke the, the penalty of sin and death in our own lives so that we could have a relationship with him. We know that we have his spirit that helps us live out life in this world. We know that, that, that we're in the church age, right? We know that, that Christ has come the first time and he's coming the second time and we're in the middle. We know actually right where we are in the timeline of human history. We know right where we are. We're waiting for him to come again, and we know how the story ends. And so when we engage in our daily life, we have the gift, because of our identity in Christ, we, we see life, we engage with our world in a completely different perspective than someone who doesn't know God. And they don't know, how did life start? And what do I do with all the brokenness and evil in the world? And what do I do with it in myself? And what hope is there for the future? We have a completely different perspective on life. And this understanding that we have is this great gift that God has given us. So it's foolish for us to live in ignorance again. Our thinking has been transformed by the word of God. And our hearts have been transformed by the spirit of God. And so we are not like unbelievers anymore. Paul goes on to say the unbelievers, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Today is a perfect example how, how light can be obscured by clouds, right? Yesterday, what a beautiful day. Everything looks different when the sun is out. It was gorgeous. Nothing was obscuring the sunlight. Today we have an example of a classic Oregon day where, where the clouds have come in. There's, there's something obscuring the light. The light is still there. We got above the clouds. We'd still see it's there, but, but there's something obscuring that. You know, I'll have to just tell you, my house looks so much cleaner on a day like today. <laughs> Doesn't yours? When the light comes out... It's crazy. It's like the light shines through my kitchen windows and there's tufts of dog fur all over my floor. And my counters have this like layer of dust and my windows are dirty. And it's, it's like this stark reality. Like, oh my goodness, my house is filthy. And I can choose to actually see that or actually I can choose to not see it, right? I can choose to go into a darker room I can choose to pull the blinds. I can choose to put my face down into my computer or my iPhone. I don't have to look at how dirty it is, even though that's the reality of things. There's even those little particles like of dander, pollen, dust that float in the air that you breathe when the sun comes in and shows. It's just disgusting, isn't it? That's what light does. It, it shines like onto the reality or the truth of, of our lives. Um, but, I, but again, I, I don't have to look at it. 
And ignorance is also darkness because Paul's reminding us that believers are ignorant, unbelievers are ignorant in their understanding, not because the light isn't shining clearly, because it is. It's revealing truth all around them, but they have made their hearts hard by refusing to see. They're like me saying, I'm not going to look at that. I'm not going to deal with that. I'm going to go into a dark room and keep my focus on something else. And this kind of sounds a little bit critical on Paul's part, but what, what Paul's doing is he's just stating a fact. He's saying, you know, without God, people are incomplete. God designed us to be in a relationship with him, and without him, we just cannot live the life that he intended us to live. The, the longer we resist truth, the longer that we reject God's love, the more calloused the human heart becomes. And the harder the human heart becomes, the more unlike God the person behaves. And so Paul goes on in verse 19 and he says, they have become callous and given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. The thing about the human life is that it's never stagnant. You know, the human life is, is we're always either moving towards God and moving towards godliness or we're moving away from God and away from godliness. You know, we, we live in a very fluid life and we never just remain the same. And there's a progression that happens when a person begins moving away from God. It begins actually with a, with a hard or obstinate heart towards him, which leads to a darkness of understanding, which then moves on to um, an alienation from God or a, or a judgment, and then finally into kind of a reckless, self-indulgent life. And if this progression is very clearly outlined in Romans 1, but also in this passage, I kind of want you to see this, this because this is what happens as a person um, is, is moving away from God. There is a, a definite progression. I don't know if you can see that. Can you see that? Okay, awesome. So you can see in Romans 1, Paul talks about how men, by their weakness, supp wickedness, suppress the truth. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God. They did not see fit to acknowledge God. This is the obstinate heart setting in. Paul says in Ephesians, this is due to their hardness of heart. And then the next stage, it's that he says in Romans 1.21, they became futile in their thinking and their senseless minds were darkened. They became fools. They had a base mind. This darkness setting into the heart. In Ephesians, he says, the futility of their minds, they are darkened in their understanding, the ignorance that is in them. And then he goes on to talk about stage three, which is this sort of death or alienation from God of the soul. He says in 24, in Romans 1, 24, therefore God gave them up um, for this reason. He says that God gave them up. And then in Ephesians 18, he says they're alienated from the life of God. And then this last stage is this reckless sort of self-indulgent life, kind of a giving over to all of that. In Romans 1, 24, he says there's impurity, dishonorable passions, shameless acts, improper conduct, all the manner of wickedness. And then in Ephesians 19, he says they've become callous, they've given themselves up to sensuality, greed, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So this is a very clear example of this downward spiral of a life that is hardened, callous to God. But... That is not the life of a believer. That is not the life of a believer. In verse 20, it says, that's not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and you were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. You know, Paul's telling us, look how many words he uses there to, to remind us that we have had a spiritual education in the truth of Jesus. 
He says, you have learned Christ, you have heard him, you have been taught in him. We are not ignorant. We have been given the great blessing of education in the gospel. We know the truth about Jesus. And I think this is the great joy and privilege that we have in coming here on Tuesdays to study the Bible together. You know, we're, we're learning the truth of Jesus. We're hearing the word being taught to us. We're, we're hearing each other in discussion groups. We're doing the study. We're opening the word at home. We're getting into the scriptures. And we're fortifying our hearts on the truth of God's word. And though there is this, this rushing river that we're swimming in as we go through life, right? There's this rushing river that is um, pushing against us. We are anchored in God's word. And we are developing spiritual stamina able to then swim against the current. We're not getting swept away. This is not who we are. We are strengthened and fortified in the word of God. Now, I don't know about you, but I actually need to be here with you on Tuesdays. It's really important to my own ability to continue swimming in the current of this world. Um, I started a Bible study like this when I was 25 years old. And I was living at the time in Sacramento, California, and it was a a gathering of women like this, though. It was in the southern part of Sacramento, so it was a very ethnically diverse group, which was really rich for me. And um, women just came from all over that part of the city and opened up their Bibles together. I remember we were studying Matthew, and um, I was one of the youngest women in that group at only 25. But... Um, After a few years, I moved here to Portland, and then I started a Bible study again. I attended a Bible study again at Lake Grove Presbyterian Church. And it was there that um, I just really began to soar in my relationship with the Lord through the study of his word. And I just have to tell you, honestly, there were years when it was such a battle to go. Like every, if it was just raining, like that was a good excuse not to go. You know that feeling, like it's just too hard to get out of bed. Um, there were times, weeks and weeks, when it was just too hard to get my lesson done. I was scribbling really basic answers to the questions like an hour before I was supposed to show up to class and just barely showing up with anything on my paper. Um, there, were, there were years where I was too grieved by the circumstances of my personal life to put in a prayer request or to even answer my leader's phone call. I just kind of wanted to go and just, just, I was just barely there um, sometimes. But by God's grace, I kept going. I just kept showing up. And it seemed like, it seemed like almost every time I went, God had something for me. Or the teaching leader would just speak like right into my life. Like it's like she was looking right at me and she had words right for me. And it was such an encouragement. And do you know that that's the pattern, that has been the pattern of my life for 32 years. 32 years. Well, praise God, right? (laughs) Um, But I'm, let me just tell you, I'm a different person because of that, because of that investment and um, I continue, my, my, I know that I will continue to be in a study like this with other women like you for the rest of my life. Until I step from this moment into the presence of Jesus, I need it. I need to be in the word. I need to be listening to the truth of God. I need the, 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 the accountability of knowing that I have to show up because you're showing up. And you have to show up because I'm showing up. And your group leaders are showing up. 
this is how we live this life in this world, in this broken world, by pressing on and swimming upstream and anchoring to the word of God and having the stamina to go the distance because we need this. God knows we need this. So Paul goes on to explain that the reason we're able to walk this life of, of holiness and righteousness is that we have this new identity in Christ. We, we aren't who we once were, so we can't return to our old habits and desires and behaviors. He says that we're to put off, he says, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life that is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So here's the truth. Believers think and act differently because what we believe fixes the direction of our lives. What we believe fixes the direction of our lives. You are a new person in Christ if you have accepted him as your savior. And that reality changes the direction of your life. You know, this is because salvation begins with um, repentance. And you know what repentance is? Repentance is a, a change of heart, a change of mind. Repentance is when we're, we're going along in our lives, we're, we're following the ways of the world, we're ignorant to God, we're ignoring him, the signs are around us, we're not giving our lives to him, and then all of a sudden, we come to our senses, God woos us to himself, and we repent, which means we say, oh, I, I'm off course, I'm a sinner, I need to turn back. And so repentance always begins with a change of mind that then leads to a change of direction. Now I'm headed towards God, I'm growing in my faith and maturity, I'm studying God's word, I'm communing with God's people, I'm worshiping him, I'm growing, I'm on the journey of walking the walk, right? So repentance begins with this change can you remember in your life when you first repented, when you first made that change of direction, when you first changed your thinking and, and went the other way? Can you remember when that was? Maybe it's last week. Maybe it's 25, 30 years ago. Maybe it's continually, right? For me, it was my senior year of college. And um, I was in this last year and I was contemplating my future and I was thinking, where am I gonna live? What job am I gonna have? Who am I going to become? What kind of woman do I want to become? And it was then that I realized that I was just not living the life that God had designed for me. I knew him. I believed in him from the time I was a little girl. I didn't have great Bible knowledge to know exactly what that meant, but I knew enough to have faith. But at that time, I, I knew that um, I was still wearing my old clothes. I was still living by the world and by my own standards and by my own designs, and I knew that I was getting ready to step into adulthood, that that's not who I wanted to be. And I just knew that that's not who God wanted me to be. And so I repented. I said, Lord, I'm sorry. That's, I don't want to follow my, my own ways in life. I want to follow you. And literally took off those clothes and put on the clothes of Christ and started on a path of a whole new life when I was 21 years old. And a worthy walk always begins with this state of repentance. It's, it's this need to take off the old and put on the new. It's an, change our thinking, change our direction. And then God, he was gracious to me. As I made that decision, he then led me to a great Bible teaching church so I could really learn his word because I, I was lacking Grew up in a very liturgical church that taught me a lot about the grandeur and glory and holiness of God, but didn't teach me the Bible. 
And so I needed that, and he, he guided me there, and then led me to a Bible study where I could be with other women and, and figure life out from the perspective of God's word. And he just didn't leave me. I love this about God. When we make that change of mind and change of direction, he comes alongside and he helps us on that journey. He doesn't leave us floundering. He comes alongside and strengthens us and he provided just what I needed to grow up in my walk. What about you? How, how are your beliefs evident in your daily life? How integrated for you is what you know about God with how you're living each day? In what area of your life are you most tempted to go back and put those old clothes back on? How do you feel like you just want to go back to that old life and put that back on instead of shedding it again, and sometimes it's daily, and taking that righteous robe of Christ, you know that red velvet righteous robe? that you wrap around your shoulders and then God looks at you and all he sees is the righteousness of Christ, that new self. Where is that conflict for you? Where is it in your life where you so struggle to want to go back to your old ways instead of standing in this new identity that you have in Jesus? This battle is real. It will never go away. We're always going to live in this tension between the old and the new, but God is faithful to grow us up in Christ, to help us in our struggles, and to enable us to walk worthy of the calling to which he's been called. And he does that by teaching us the truth of his word and then giving us his spirit to help us along the way. And it's no wonder when we get to the end of our lives and we, and we see him face to face, he's going to get all the glory because we're going to know that it was all him, every part of it, the repentance, the change of direction, the, the, the growing up in our faith, the changed life, the old clothes, the new clothes, we're going to get to him and we're going to go, hallelujah, you did it all. He's going to get all the praise. So next, Paul's going to get very specific about how we can behave in the way that we actually believe. He's going to give us some exhortations. So God has done his part, right? He's made us a new creation in Christ. Now this is our part. This is how we respond to him by replacing those sinful attitudes and actions and behaviors with new righteous and holy ones. He's going to give us five exhortations. First of all, he tells us, we need to replace lying with truth-telling. Paul begins, this is the most universal temptation people experience. It's the temptation to lie. And so he says, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one of another. Now a lie, a lie is a false statement that is spoken as fact with the intent of misleading. So sometimes we make false statements in ignorance. That's not a lie. We just don't know any differently, or we make a mistake. But, um, but lying begins with a decision of the heart to mislead someone. And it's the most basic characteristic of our old selves. Our old selves were liars from the time we're little. You see that in your little kids, don't you? I didn't do it. Yeah, it wasn't me. Um, the Bible says that God hates lying. And that Satan is a liar, and Satan's lies have prompted sin and destruction in our world. Satan actually uses his lies to try to convince us also that God is a liar. And so we know that lying breeds chaos, doesn't it? Like um, one lie necessitates another lie, which necessitates another lie, and pretty soon you have this whole tangled mess of falsehoods. That's what lying does. It's chaotic. It's, it's nonsensical. 
But truth is orderly. It's right, it's real. Usually there's one simple truth, it's really clear. And so when we speak truth and when we live out truth, then our words are trustworthy and, our, and it, builds, it builds our unity in our relationships. We can depend on one another. We know that we speak truth to one another. But it takes courage, I think, to speak truth. And often, our lies are told to cover up our own fear, our own shame. We don't want anyone to know the mistakes that we made, so we lie about them. We cover them up. And our old selves, in our old selves, we didn't have the courage to admit that we were lying or that we even had fear and shame because we, we had such a dependence to plead on, to, we had such a drive to want to please people rather than to want to please God. And so now in our new selves, we, we know we're sinners. We know that we sin. We know that God sees everything, that he forgives us. So we have more courage to be truthful with our lives, to say, you know, I messed up. I'm so sorry. Oh, I'm so glad God forgives me. We have, more, um, we have a, a greater ability to be authentic and truthful with each other. Have you seen this change in yourself um, as you've matured in Christ? Do you find that you're able to catch yourself sooner in like that little white lie or an exaggeration or a tendency to misspeak a little bit quicker than you used to? That's the Holy Spirit in you, the Holy Spirit who taps you on the shoulder and goes, oh, you know, that's not quite true. And then you're like, oh, let me clarify that for you. The Holy Spirit helps us live in consistency and truth. Well, next is that we're gonna, we want to replace unrighteous anger with righteous anger. Paul says in verse 26, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Anger in itself is not sin. We know that God gets angry. We look at the Bible, we know that Jesus got angry at the money changers in the temple. But God's anger is a righteous anger and it's his just judgment against sin. And for us, it's really hard. It's not impossible, but it's hard for us to be angry without sinning because our motives and our emotions are tainted with sin. We're not pure in our, motion, in our motives and emotions, and so it's really hard for us to, to manage anger in a way that doesn't lead to sin. But the Bible does encourage us to be um, mad about the atrocities of our world, You know, we should be mad that children are abused. We should be so angry that girls are are taken up into sex trafficking. We should be so mad that people are oppressed and mistreated. These things are, are, are atrocities in our world that are because of sin. They're things that God is angry at, and we should be angry at those things with him. And this, but this kind of anger can actually um, manifest itself more as grief in our hearts, an anger that causes us to grieve. And so there's this deep sorrow. You know, we may not all have the ability to do anything about the atrocities in our world, but we can, we can feel sorrowful and we can grieve with God about these things. That is a good response. Our challenge is not to sin in our anger. There's a super interesting verse I found this week, Psalm 4.4. It says, it says, be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. I was like, really? That feels so passive. (laughs) But I think the intention that the psalmist is saying is, he's saying, don't contribute to the evil in our world by adding your own unrighteous anger to a justifiably angry event. Go think about it, ponder it, um, reflect. Don't lash out, don't contribute to the evil in the way that you respond. 
Because unrighteous anger usually lacks self-control and it's explosive in nature. Oftentimes it's smoldering under the surface of our lives and it just takes a little wind to catch it into fire and flame and we have an outburst, right? And Paul's challenging us to be angry at the things that God is angry at, but to let God bring his perfect justice to the sinner. So I want you to think for a minute, what sparks your anger? What is it? What's, what just fans your, your anger right into flame and, and tips you off into rage? You know, maybe it's impatience that you feel with your children. I know as a mom, that's hard. You just tell your children a hundred times to do something and they don't do it and then you're like, ah! Or maybe it's a snarky comment that your husband just happens to pass at you in the morning and it just like, you give him like, he hits you with a BB and you hit him back with a firecracker. Or maybe it's somebody on the road who is just so slow and you're in a hurry and suddenly all the anger you have that isn't even justified towards that person comes out as you're cursing at them in the car. Or maybe it's just somebody at work that's so rude and you've got a smoldering fire every day as you're engaging with that person. Well, Paul gives us three tips to remember when we want to lash out. He says, first of all, when you're angry, don't sin. So when you're angry, breathe, pray, take a time out, go to your room, lay on your bed, get your thoughts and emotions under control. Don't lash out in anger. Don't sin. Second, he says, when you're angry, try to resolve the issue as quickly as possible. The Bible tells it, in as much as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. We don't have control of how other people respond. But if you can resolve the issue quickly, it's so much better than letting the sun go down on your anger. Seek forgiveness, speak truth and love. And the third is, when you're angry, don't give an opportunity to the devil to take hold of your heart. Because Satan is a murderer and he's a liar. And he will try to send a wind to smolder those smoldering feelings and he'll try to stir them up and he'll, you'll get a lot of self-talk in your own head about why you're justified to feel the way you do and pretty soon you've got yourself worked up or you've brought a friend or two into it with you and man, there's a raging fire going on in your anger and you've brought a lot of people in with you. And so um, he, he tries to fan into flames a type of rage that will kill our most cherished relationships. So when you're in this state, I want to encourage you to follow the acronym HALT. HALT. HALT is an acronym, I think, that started with Alcoholics Anonymous, but it's, it's great. It's a way to identify when you're most vulnerable to temptation. So you're most vulnerable to temptation when you're hungry, when you're angry, when you're lonely, or when you're tired. So if you find yourself in one of those four states, Take a time out for yourself. Breathe, pray, seek the Lord, and try to not enter into that knowing that you are so vulnerable that the next thing you do is likely not going to be a good decision. The third thing is replace stealing with work and giving. In 28, he says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Do not steal is the eighth of the Ten Commandments. God made provision for people to actually own property, and then he set up laws to protect that personal property. And so, but interesting, this is another one of Satan's characteristics, because um, Satan is not only spoken of in scripture as a liar and a murderer, but also a thief. He says in John 10.10, Jesus says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. 
Did you know that Satan is the one who tempted Eve to steal the first forbidden fruit? Stealing was the beginning of a lot of hardship in our world. But it's interesting that Paul doesn't just admonish us to work so that we don't need to steal. He actually tells us that we should work so we can be generous with other people so they don't have to steal. That we have a, when we work and we have provisions, we have something to share so people aren't, other people aren't tempted to have to steal to meet their own needs. Work is such a gift from God. And just ask anybody who's been out of job for a period of time what a gift it is. It's a suffering to not have a job. Every Monday in the community room, we have a group called the Job Seekers Ministry. And it's a ministry for people in our community who are looking for work. And it is probably one of the most discouraging times for someone when you don't know when or where you're going to get your next paycheck. You don't know what you're going to be doing for your next job. It just seems like blackness out there. You can't see the way forward. So they meet and they, they learn how to write resumes and they learn how to practice interviews and they, they network and get job opportunities. It's just this incredible ministry of encouragement for people who desperately want work. So it's a terrible suffering to not have work. It's a blessing. And I love that, that even the people that we look at in scripture, you know, Paul was a tent maker and Jesus was a carpenter and David was a shepherd, you know, God gives work to his servants, and in, then in that context, there is, there's a, a, a blessing to be engaging with people and also to be able to share financial resources, not only to support the ministry, but to support those who have needs and are struggling. Have you ever had a season of unemployment in your life, or your husband, or someone? Yeah, where you know what that feels like. It really is a suffering that not many people talk about. Do you know someone right now who could use financial help because they're in a time of suffering? Do you ever just praise and thank God for your work? Sometimes we think, ah, work, but ah, work. It's a blessing to have work and to know that your needs are provided and you aren't tempted to steal. But you know, one of the other um, great temptations that we have to steal is when we feel like we're entitled to something. Like, I think sometimes it's tempting for people to feel like, they can cheat on their taxes, for example, because, well, the taxes are so exorbitantly high. Who, in real reality, could pay these taxes? Or because they don't like the lawmakers who made the tax codes, you know? There's, there's sometimes stealing or cheating comes in the form of justifying or feeling entitled, and there's just kind of a little twist of the mind to make you feel like something's okay. But Paul is reminding us again, that's why we need to think rightly about our true identity in Christ and then behave accordingly. The Lord sees and knows everything. There is nothing ever stolen behind his back. He sees and knows it all. The fourth thing is, Paul says we should replace corrupt talk with edifying talk. So he says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption." Corrupt talk comes out of a corrupt heart. And so our words, you know, we originate our words in our minds. They don't just escape without thought. They come because we think them first. We think, therefore we speak. I always know that I can discern the condition of my heart by what comes out of my mouth as soon as I stub my toe. You know, if I stub my toe and a curse word comes out, I go, oh, my heart is crusty. 
It's just kind of the knee-jerk response that we have sometimes by what we say is just a great litmus test. Like, how's my heart doing? Ah, not so good. So we have to watch over our hearts. Um, in the same way, he's saying we need to speak words of encouragement to each other. We need to do it for the sake of strengthening and unifying the body of Christ. Negative talk, gossip, backbiting, all of that just kills relationships. It kills unity. And you know how like the careless words of a parent to a child um, can sting for life. Or the, the cutting remarks of a wife to a husband or a husband to a wife can, can shut down trust and intimacy for years. It really matters what we say. Words resonate. We hear them over and over again. So we have to think before we speak. Here's a good test for you. The next time that you are, are, want, are tempted to speak out of a critical heart, will you ask yourself this question? Will what I'm about to say please or grieve the Holy Spirit? Will what I'm about to say please or grieve the Holy Spirit? Because one of the greatest testimonies of a changed life in Christ is a new language, actually. It's a new language that's not crude and not harsh. It's not careless. It's not gossiping. It's like what flows out of your mouth becomes words of affirmation and blessing and encouragement. And it's because that's how your mind, your thinking is changing towards other people. But this is hard for us because we don't hear this every day. Like it might sound all good and well here, but you go out into the world, you get out on country club and somebody's going to shout curse words at you because you're not driving fast enough. We go turn on the news or, the, or books or whatever. We're just getting bombarded with a whole different language. And so we have to practice rejecting, keeping this language in our minds so that these words don't slip out of our mouths. How, how are, can you, do you think, replace negative speech in your mind with kindness and affirmation? How can you change your thoughts so that your thinking changes and then your words are edifying? So last is replace bitterness and rage with kindness and forgiveness. 31, it says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So he's saying, in other words, he's saying, look, you have to actively put off the attitudes and actions of your old selves. You gotta put it off, and then you gotta put on the clothes of Christ, the righteous robes of Christ, and then you have to treat others the way Christ treats us. The only reason we're wearing the righteous robes of Christ, the only reason the pile of old clothes is over there is because Jesus died on the cross for us. He saved us from ourselves. He made us new creations in Christ. The only reason we have new clothes to wear is because of what he's done to forgive us. So he's saying, now go out into the world wearing my new clothes that I've given you and act like me. Love, be kind, gracious, forgiving, compassionate. He's saying, go out and be like me so that others will want to know me and come to me and know who I am. We are to treat others the way Jesus treats us. And so here's the truth that I could see here. And that is that the walk of a believer is a lifelong journey of maturity and transformation in Christ. It's lifelong. The oldest person in this room hasn't arrived there yet. It's a journey. And so when you put on Christ, you become a new person from the inside out. And this week, what Paul's been doing is he's been sharing with us 
basically, between this week and a little bit of next week, there are 25 characteristics that are, are indicators of the old self. And um, I want you to look at this chart. We're going to, next week or the week after, we're going to look at 25 characteristics of the new self. So I don't want to get to the good stuff until we first really ponder the old self. So I want you to look at that chart, and would you just on your, on your paper, just jot down a few of these characteristics that you really need help with. You just really need help. And my challenge to you this week is that you will take this to the Lord in prayer. Will you ask him, you know, show me in your word the truth about this. Give me the power of your spirit to change from the inside out. Maybe that does entail a couple of um, disciplines, a couple of um, practices that you're going to do outwardly, but ultimately that is to create in you a new heart through the spirit's help to become this new person that you have the power to become. And ask him to change you in this way. Be proactive. Don't let the water sweep you downstream um, by indifference or passivity, but, but swim with strength and endurance to become this new self that God has already created you to be and is already waiting to help you to become through the power of his word and his spirit. There is power in the world. And I'm just going to tell you right now, I'm going to practice what I preach. My, mine is probably not up there. Probably is but it's taking better care of my health. I am, I'm going to put into my behaviors what I believe to be true, and that is that I have to do better managing my physical, emotional, stressful life, and so I can go the distance with the Lord, which is what I desire to do. So, um, so there's power through the Word and through the Spirit to live out this reality of what we know in our daily life. So how do you want God to change you this week? Will you pray about that with me, and then we'll worship. Father, you're so specific. I just think about how you give us this grand theological truth about who we are in Christ. You tell us who we are, holy and blameless and forgiven and redeemed and sealed by the Spirit and all of these amazing beliefs that we now have because of Jesus and our relationship with him. But now you don't leave us just to the clouds, the lofty ideals. You just flesh it out. Lord, you're calling us to live differently to, to walk in the truth of your word, to think differently, to behave differently, to trust your, your spirit to change us, to pursue um, living and treating others the way that you treat us. And so, Lord, we need your help. Help us to do this. We are, we are powerless without your help. And so would you show us each how we can lay this at your feet and invite you in. And Lord, thank you that you're so gentle and kind when you help us. You don't hammer us, you just come alongside, you take our hands, and you hold them as you help us walk worthy of the calling to which we've been called. We love you, and it's in your name we pray, amen.